The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to James chapter 2. And uh, we're in James 2 because we're continuing in our Curious series, if you don't know what that is. Uh, Basically, uh, a while back, we asked you for questions. We asked you, uh, what's on your mind? What are the things you're thinking about uh, when it comes to faith and doctrine and the intersection of that with culture and life and uh, basically whatever's on your mind? And so uh, people have submitted questions and we're working through those. Uh, We do it every couple years because life changes and culture changes and sometimes questions change. So uh, it's it's a good opportunity for us to come at the Word of God from a a different direction. And uh, I just want to say, I know I've I've kind of already been saying this, but you guys are really good at asking these questions. I feel like you're teeing me up almost like you put Babe Ruth in a t-ball game. You know what I mean? Like, your questions are so good. And uh, I'm also hoping that I'm a more relatable and relevant pastor now that I use the sports ball reference uh, here on a Sunday morning. I know that's, that's in the in the playbook. So I uh, also want to say this, it's <clears throat> been a common enough theme. Several of you have apologized uh, for your questions being long or wordy. And I just want you to please know, I don't want you to feel like that. Um, it's actually really helpful when you expound on what you're thinking and asking. It lets me really understand what, what is the heart of the question. So uh, keep sending me those small novels. That's fine. I don't mind reading them. Okay. I enjoy it. Amen. Uh, so the question we're dealing with today, it, it, was, it was given longer than the summary I'm going to give you. And I want to say that the asker did, did a great job outlining uh, <clears throat> many of the relevant considerations needed for a, a circumspect conversation around this. So they, they included a lot of scripture, and, but I, I'd be half, if I, if, if I read the whole question, I'd be half preaching the sermon. So I've boiled it down to a summary question, and then we'll, we'll get into unpacking this. So the summary question is this, is salvation really through faith alone? Is salvation really through faith alone? And, and if, you're, if you're an old crusty Christian like me that's been around for a minute, you might think, well, that just seems like a very, fairly elementary thing. And at one level it is, but at another level it's not. And so uh, hopefully we'll be serving, maybe those of you who are just beginning to read your Bible and understand what all this is about, but also it's going to give us a chance to kind of dive deep into what seems maybe surface level, but has, has more underneath uh, for those of us that have been doing this a while. So uh, if, if someone didn't want to wrestle with the tension created by all that the Bible says on this matter, they could end up in the same place that uh, Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer, did. Uh, And this maybe will highlight for you why this is a bit more complicated than it may seem. Uh, Martin Luther disliked the book of James, uh, at least for some time suggested it should not be a part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, I don't know how many of you know that, but that's a fairly big deal. He said that the book of James didn't talk about Jesus enough. uh, and, And... in terms of direct references, that, that may be a fair observation, um, but I think indirectly it does. 
and, and that it didn't contain within it the heart of the gospel. Now, there's some debate on whether he maintained that position you know, long term, but there, there was at least a period of time that he did talk this way openly, that he, he was not a fan of the book of James. Okay? And, and why is that? Um, because what we're about to read here in James, at surface level, it could seem to be, it could seem to be incongruent with the rest of what Scripture teaches about how men and women are saved. And I'm going to summarize what I'm saying there. So I'm saying we're going to read this, we're going to read James 2. It could seem at the surface it's incongruent with the rest of what Scripture teaches about how men and women are saved. And to summarize what I'm saying the rest of Scripture teaches about that, I'm going to read to you uh, a portion of Ephesians 2. These are fairly well-known verses, so for some of you this will sound very familiar. But for all of us, uh, we should not be able to hear this read or read this without having, having a little bit of that Jesus joy jump up in our heart, okay? This is good stuff right here, amen? So Ephesians 2, starting in verse 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's not ambiguous, is it? <laughs> you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast okay for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So that was long, and, and I couldn't touch it without giving you all of that context. That was long, but, but shorthand, I would say the rest of what the Bible teaches, I think James teaches it too, I'm going to try to show you that, but what the Bible teaches about how men and women are saved is that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Okay, And Ephesians 2 does a really good job summarizing that idea. There are some who think this is irreconcilable with what we are about to read. But my, my hope today is to show you it's not. But actually what we're reading today is an example. It's, it's a look at the wisdom of God on display as well as his very particular love for each of us as his children. Now, if you're new to what the Bible and what it teaches, you, you might be confused by the question at all. Is, is, is salvation really through faith alone? Uh, but it's an important one. This is, this is a, why would we spend a bunch of time, and, and I'm, you know, I know I say this a lot. I'm kind of like the boy that cried wolf. I'm like, hey man, we're gonna do some serious work in the scriptures today. And we do, right? Because of like the way we approach the Bible. But today, like man, if you're a note taker, get ready, okay? Because we got to do some stuff today. And if you're not a note taker, maybe today's a good day to start, all right? Because we got some serious work to do, all right? So but this, this idea of, of salvation being by grace through faith in Christ alone, it's, it's a pillar of truth that, that it, it separates Christianity from all other religions and philosophies. Um, 
And it also separates Christianity from what a lot of people think it teaches. Okay, this is very important. And so it's a very relevant question. Is salvation truly by faith alone? Okay, so that leads us to being able to read uh, James chapter two here. Uh, Hopefully you have a a Bible or an app with you. Uh, If you don't, uh, just listen to the silky smooth tones of my voice and try to follow along, okay? Amen. James 2, 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But have you dishonored the poor man? Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use, what, now this is, I read that because it's the flow of thought and it's the context leading up. So this is really where it starts to get, where, where you could think it's incongruent with what we read in Ephesians. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith is without works, is dead. Praise God for his word. Now, do you see the problem? (laughs) Do you see the potential incongruence? Um, it's, It's real and it needs to be worked through. And the answer is not to kick James out, okay? And I'll give you more reasons for that as we move on. Uh, We got to wrestle with this, okay? So if you, if you kind of break this up into sections, just, we, we touched one through nine. And so I'm, that's basically, I would summarize that as, as this, this warning about showing partiality uh, based on socioeconomic status. And uh, it, 
it's a terrible reality that there's a lot of many, maybe, I don't know, it's the same word. There's a lot of folks that, that just, they don't pay attention to that warning. Um, it is an example, but it's specific for a reason. Um, as a matter of fact, I attended a conference one time where a fairly well-known uh, pastor stood up and, and was teaching a workshop on how to fund the vision, was the name of the workshop. And uh, I was at this thing because a friend of mine asked me to come, and I just out of relationship went. So like, all right, cool, pastor's conference, we'll do it. And my man, uh, pr- you know, proceeds to stand up and spend the first 15 minutes talking about their like $4 million church building and how awesome it is and how good the sound is and their projector probably doesn't break and all kinds of stuff, you know what I mean? Um, so was, <laughs> that was the first 15 minutes kind of laying the thing out and then, and then proceeds and, and part of why, you know, I'm, the Lord has healed me of, of being um, a man quick-tempered, I think. Ask Natalie, but I think we're, I think we're doing pretty good. But uh, still, man, if, if there's sin's going to manifest in, in my life in a, in a way most prominently, it's probably that. So, and I, could, I know that vein in my head was, was doing that thing it does sometimes. Because I'm watching, and a lot of the people in this conference, so it's, it's like young guys with notebooks, just like super stoked about thinking about planting a church, right? And I'm like, oh, this is just great in my nerves. So he goes on to teach that what, to fund the vision, what you should do is mark out a particular set of time during the week and make sure you spend that amount of time with the top 10% givers of the church. And I'm thinking, <clears throat> uh, man, James said exactly the opposite. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't particularly prefer people based on their socioeconomic status. So let me just, I just want to, I could probably preach many sermons and maybe get more angry about it as I think about it. So I'm going to get away from it. But let me just say this. I just want to set a good expectation here, okay? So if you're somebody that's, maybe you were a part of a different church another time, and, and maybe you're somebody that has uh, economic resources and, and you're a generous giver, thank you. And, and that's awesome. And I'm glad you're faithfully worshiping God in that way. But that isn't going to mean that you're going to be chosen for leadership here, because of that, or that you're going to have more face time with leaders as a result of that. So I just want to set that expectation. Like if you've been dropping big checks in the offering uh, and, and wondering why nobody is, is coddling you, it's because we're not going to do it. And I hope, yeah, one person said amen, more of you should have. Um, <laughs> and and if, if you don't like that because you've been used to that, um, I, I, would, I would implore you to think about that and actually change maybe your discontentment about it to gratitude that you're a part of a church that, that thinks about it that way. Um, it's actually more of a reason, I think, that we're a safe place to sow uh, resources. So anyways, we're, we're not going to do that. Uh, and when people do that, I think it really ticks Jesus off. So that's why I feel at least halfway justified in being... <clears throat> perturbed by it myself. Okay, verses 10 through 13, then, we see our need for grace and dependence on mercy. And so this is where I would maybe, if I had a chance to sit down with Martin Luther, I would say, hey man, I hear you. Uh, James doesn't emphasize things the same way Paul does. He doesn't write the same way Paul does, but I don't necessarily think that means his writing is gospel light, uh, because the first part of the gospel is our need for grace and dependence on mercy. We see that very clearly in verses 10 through 13 here. 
uh, of James 2. Let me, I'll just read those again so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all, right? This is, this is James saying in a different way uh, the first half of the gospel, that we, which Paul said a different way in Romans, right? He said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. James is particularly saying, in case you think you're doing pretty good, here's the reality. Um, if, you, if you violate one part of the law, you become a transgressor of the law. You've gone from perfect to imperfect, and we're all in that boat. That's basically his point, okay? In verses 10 through 13. So, so we see that, to me, that's uh, indication of, of the heart of the gospel here. <clears throat> and, then, and, then, and then he begins to have, look at this side of the coin as it pertains to the interplay of works and faith, okay? Uh, and, and 14 through 26 is what I said we'd be camping in the most, and that's where we'll be. And, and, and we can see, I think, you, we should be able to see why some think this contradicts with Ephesians 2. Now that we've read it, do you see what I'm talking about? What was that summary again? Ephesians 2, I read you that, that passage from Ephesians 2. The summary is that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Grace through faith in Christ alone. Then you come read what James has to say in, in 14 through 26, and if we're not careful, we could think uh, he's saying the exact opposite. We're saved by faith and by works. And that's where some people have landed. That's where some people even that, that would claim uh, to be following Christ have landed. They decide, I like James more than Paul, right? And then there's some people that decide they like Paul more than James, and there's some people who don't like any of them, and they're just going to do red letters. But I've got some of those for you too. Red letters, in, in case you're, you're, you're new to the scriptures, a lot of Bibles have the words of Jesus in red letters. I'm really trying to be mindful of like our, our Christianese and like inside speak, you know what I mean? Because um, if, if we're doing this right, we're going to have new believers in here all the time. So I got to make sure I explain stuff like that. I'm like, red letters, what the heck? I remember I was 10 years old, the first time I ever stepped into a church building and they sang nothing but the blood. I was so freaked out. Like, what are we doing? You know what I mean? And, and the carpet was like neon red. I just, I have these memories. Yeah. I'm like, and now that's like my favorite worship song. The worship team loves me and they like, it's in the rotation ever so often just, I think, to bless me. But it's just funny, man. Uh, sometimes we forget things that seem so elementary to us, how it's, it's really deep stuff. <laughs> and so we gotta, we gotta be careful about that. Amen. So, we can see how maybe you think 14 through 26 contradicts what we read in Ephesians, but it, it doesn't, though. What, what we see in this apparent contradiction is actually a helpful contrast. It's not a contradiction, it's a contrast. We, and I'm going to repeat what I said before. We see the wisdom of God in, in, what we, in the fact that James wrote this and Paul wrote what he wrote. We see the wisdom of God in knowing that his children have different strengths and weaknesses and that his love is for all of us. And he has this ability to meet each of us where we're at. Because the truth of the gospel, based on your background, based on your personality, based on the frame of reference that you're standing with when it hits you, it's going to hit you different ways. There's going to be different responses. And so uh, this is actually, it's, it's beautiful that God in his great wisdom inspired different men to write about this big, deep, beautiful thing we call the gospel and to to walk around it and look at it from different angles to help us. What we shouldn't do then is pit those perspectives, those circumspect views against each other, right? It's, the answer is not that we put uh, Paul and James in, in an octagon and uh, whoever comes out on top, we're going to go with what he said, right? We have to think 
harder than that. We have to ask for the Holy Spirit's help to see if God allowed these things to coexist within his scriptures, then an apparent contradiction may actually be a helpful contrast, okay? So how do we see that? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break down 14 through 26 and, and kind of show you the pieces and then hopefully show us why it's a contrast and not a contradiction, okay? So 14, verse 14, I'm going to call the big question, okay? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Okay, so let's start right there. That's very important. What is the big question? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can faith save him? So James is introducing this idea that someone can say they have faith. They may even think they have faith, but they don't. Okay, now, if you just jump to verse 24, and I may do this with you a couple times, because in doing this and working hard through this, I'm teaching you how to read the Bible right, okay? So there's dual purpose here. But what, sometimes what happens when, when, they, when they pit this against each other or even, be, you know, they would, they would let this cause them to doubt the, the overall trustworthiness of Scripture. If you just jump to verse 24 and do how a lot of people do Bible study and lift it out of its context, verse 24 says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you go, period, okay? That doesn't line up with Ephesians 2. I've got this irreconcilable, illogical problem. Well, hold on. What is James talking about in verse 24? You've got to go back to verse 14 to find out. The, the whole premise that he's working with here, that he's starting with is, what if someone says he has faith? Someone thinks they have faith, but has no works. Can that faith save him? And then he's going to go into an example. And this is a com, you know, it's a common form of kind of rhetoric when you're making an argument. Okay, so here's this example. He reaches back to even what he was talking about before. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food... One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Okay, so that's his example. So someone might say, they, they might say, or they might even think they have faith, but if they don't have any works, can, 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 is that a real faith? Can that faith save them? Here's an example of that. Somebody's hungry right in front of you, and you give them some kind of pithy, Christianese, nice thing. Oh, be, go, go in peace. Be warm and be filled. What does James say about that? Save it. That means nothing. That's useless. Amen. Okay. That childish noise I made, that I added that. That's not in the Bible, in case don't go out from here and say, you know. That was that was all me. Paraphrasing. So so then he verse 17, now he's now he's stating, so he's asked a big question, he's given an example, verse 17. Now he's He's stating a thesis. He's giving you his point, okay? What is it? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Okay, so really what he's, what if someone says they have faith? What if someone thinks they have faith? Is, is that faith real? The question is, is, is thrown out there. It's, it's put into our minds. And then he's, now he's continuing his argument. And what, so what is he saying? If, if you think you got faith and it has no works, it's, it's dead. How can, we, how can we figure out maybe if somebody is just saying they have faith or just think they have faith, but, but it's not, in fact, a genuine faith? Okay? And, and that idea has to carry over as we, as we track James' argumentation to what he says 
further, and I would say in particular in verse 24. Okay, so now he's going to give us another example in verses uh, 18 and 19, okay? But someone, would, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Man, James, my man, very direct. (laughs) Wow, okay. All right, brother. Uh, Yeah, there ain't much dancing around that. So so what we're seeing here is a case being built. We have to make sure we're understanding what he's saying. He's talking about a particular form of faith. And this is, this is part of where we're seeing a contrast and not a contradiction between Ephesians 2. Paul's not addressing this idea almost at all. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you in a second. He, he can't even do what he did without touching it. But this is not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about genuine faith in Ephesians 2. He's talking about the saving faith given as a gift from God to us. Okay, That's what Paul's talking about. James is talking about something different. He's saying, if, if you're saying you have faith, well, it might, be, it, it might be mental assent. It might be something similar to what the demons have, which is a mental acknowledgement of the facts, but it's not the kind of faith we're talking about that saves. It, doesn't, it hasn't translated from, well, yeah, that's probably true, to I believe this enough to hang my hat on it, to bet my life on it, to bet my eternity on it, to obey as a result of it. That's a big difference. Okay, this is helpful. All right, it's helping me. I mean, I guess you can come along for the ride. So verse 20, the thesis continues. Okay, so question, example, thesis, example. Now the thesis continues. Uh, Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Man, okay, you foolish fellow. (laughs) I like, you know, and it probably makes sense. I like James, so whatever. Uh, the the, the, he's still unpacking the same idea. Real faith, okay? Real faith, this is, this is a big idea. Always, always, always. Real faith always has works with it. Mental acknowledgement of facts does not necessarily always have works with it. That's how you can help identify the difference between the saving faith that Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2, and this kind of, shall we say, false faith that James is talking about. Okay? So they're, they're, they're all around the gospel. They're all around this idea. They're talking about important things we need to be able to understand, but they're not fighting with each other. They're, they're looking at, at two different sides of a coin. Paul was focused very much in Ephesians in celebrating the beauty of grace through faith in Christ alone. He was not addressing this. But God in his great wisdom had James write a book too. Amen. So that we don't end up totally ignorant to the possibility, the reality, that we could have something that might look like genuine saving faith from 10 yards away, but upon further examination is no different than what demons have. That's important. I, I, I really want to know that. That's a helpful self-examination tool. And something else I want to say about how the asker the question did a great job. They started off by saying, this is not about me trying to judge whether other people are saved. This is about me examining my own faith. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
I'm holding my Bible or I would give you two thumbs up. That's very much the right way to be dealing with these verses. Don't take these verses and load them in your self-righteousness bazooka and go around and start blasting people, okay? This is for you and Jesus to be dealing with you, okay? And your nasty attitude and whatever else other problems you got, okay? Amen. Don't be a foolish fellow, all right? That's what James said. You call me? No, James. Take it up with him. All right, <clears throat> verses 20, so, so big question, example, thesis, example, thesis again, another example. My man's doing a great job here, making a solid point, okay? And so 21 through 23, now he's going into an example again. He's gonna, I'm trying to teach you this principle. Here's another example to help you understand it. Was not Abraham our father uh, justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Okay? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God. The scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. This to me is another really helpful example. It shows us James is is not disagreeing that righteousness comes through genuine faith, right? He's saying that in Abraham, having the the accompanying works of obedience to God, even when it was hard, it showed that this faith he had was genuine, that the scripture is fulfilled that says what? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. James is not against the idea that trusting God by faith is what makes us righteous, We see him pointed out here, even in the middle of his argumentation for the other side of the coin, even here in his argumentation for, hey, yes, the gospel is beautiful. Mercy and grace of God is a free gift. Uh, Yes, it's by faith, but make sure you're not deceived into having a false faith. Okay? So I, I get the sense that he understands even how different this is than what else has been said, or even in Paul's approach uh, but right here in the middle of it, we see him saying that, that the works Abraham did, it was, that was part of how we, we can trust in the fulfillment of that scripture, that Abraham believed God. He believed God and that was, he was counted as righteousness. It was his belief, okay? We see the outworking of that in his obedience. Amen. Uh, that, so that's 21 through 23, I think that really helps us to see James would not agree to fight Paul in an octagon, okay? Um, I, I, have, I don't know. I, I think a lot of us are going to be surprised when we get to the other side of eternity. I imagine if there was a fist fight in an octagon between James and Paul, I got, I got to say I would think James would win. Here's my idea. Paul seems kind of like a nerd to me. Um, and nerds are great. Love them. Uh, I am one in some ways. But if James was the brother of Jesus, that means he was probably helping with carpentry stuff too, probably a little more fit. I get the idea Paul was kind of small statured. And look, man, weight and reach really matter. So I don't know if, you know, I don't know if we'll get to box for fun in heaven, probably not, but I think James has Paul. That's just my thoughts on it. You can feel free to disagree. Okay. I did a sports ball analogy earlier. I had to, you know, give the MMA guys something to grunt about. What's up? Okay. We did baseball. Just run the whole gamut. Be the sports pastor. 
Relatable and relevant. That's what I'm going for. Hope you feel related to. Amen. Those are jokes. Two people understood that. That's good. It means it's a terrible joke, right? When you have to say, I'm joking, it's like, oh, hot in here. This is not going well. Okay. That's all right. Some of you are just hard to get to laugh. I get it. Uh, okay, so that brings us to verse 24. Verse 24, is, it's the one that really seems to be in direct disagreement with Paul in Ephesians, uh, but it has to be read with the rest of this context in, in, in view, right? We have the big question that started in verse 14. Uh, we've got verse 17 where he says, faith without works is dead if it's by itself. The point I'm making is faith can't be by itself. Genuine faith won't be by itself. We got to keep these things, this is all one argumentation. We can't just grab verse 24 and say, oh, look at that direct contradiction with what Paul said. That's not what James is saying. It's clear if we read what he said, okay? <clears throat> you got the big question, uh, verse 14, verse 17. You got the acknowledgement in verse 19, okay? When he talks about demons, that there's this idea he's talking about, it's a different kind of faith. It's a mental belief that's different than saving faith. It's the kind of belief or faith that a demon could have. Okay, he's talking about something different. Uh, and then we've got the examples all throughout to show us how to tell the difference between the two. So he's making a point. His point is, there's a, there's a, there's a false kind of faith. There's a, there's a belief that doesn't go from the head to the heart, that doesn't lead to real love for God or the transformation and obedience that would come if you're convinced that a God this good and this loving has set his affection on you. Okay, there's, there's a kind of faith that isn't saving. But, it, but what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2 and what James is talking about in James 2 is they're not arguing with each other. In, 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 in significant ways, it's like they're talking about two different things, though they're tightly woven together. And so let me, let me make sure we're clear. Some have read James and thought that it's saying this. It's, this is not what it's saying. It's not that faith starts the process of salvation and works finishes it. It's clear that's not what James is saying. What he's saying is if there is no works, there is not true faith. He's helping us understand this very important principle, okay? Now, some of you are still wrecked. Some of you still, and I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna promise, we're gonna deal with that. Some of you are like, ooh, this is terrifying, <laughs> okay? Because I know me. Well, hold on, we'll get, we're, I'm gonna help, we're gonna help everybody. The, em the emphasis of James here is, is different than the emphasis of Paul in Ephesians. But I, I want to say this, don't, don't get it twisted and think that they're that far apart, okay? They're not in contention. I, I would submit this to you. The emphasis of these two writers is different, but Paul couldn't even focus on his side of the coin, right? James couldn't focus on his side of the coin without talking about the fulfillment of Scripture that, that Abraham was called righteous, what? because he believed God. James couldn't make this argument for watch out for false faith. Watch out for this false kind of belief that demons have. He couldn't even make that argument without making sure he mentioned Abraham was counted righteous by faith. Paul couldn't even have this beautiful treatise in Ephesians 2 talking about the, the amazing nature of grace and how it saves us, the mercy of God upon us even while we were still yet sinners. He couldn't touch all of that and look at his side of the coin without ending it, that, that part we read earlier, verse 10, let me read it to you again. For we, all the stuff he said, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. This, stand in wonder at all at this beautiful, deep, mysterious truth of the gospel 
And he caps it off with this statement, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay? Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. These guys aren't that far apart. God used Paul to focus on one side of this coin. God used James to focus on the other. And they're And even in their writing, they're not in contention. They're pointing at each other's side of the coin. Hey, don't forget about that. Right? Amen. Okay. (laughs) Now, why do we need this contrast? Why am I saying this this is evidence of the manifold wisdom of God? And why is this evidence of God's particular love for each one of us, knowing that we are different, knowing that we're going to come to the gospel with different biases, different preconceived notions, uh, different things, the, the journey for us to work through fully receiving and living out this beautiful truth, it's, it's going to be different for me than it was for you, okay? Why, why, do, we, why do we need this contrast? Well, I'm going I'm to try to spell it out, okay? Because we need it because some of you, some of us, have a very soft and sensitive conscience. And some of you have a very hard and calloused conscience, And this is one reason why there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to these issues. That's why we would have been left wanting if we had just Ephesians or just, just Ephesians 2 or just James 2. Well, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean some of us have a soft, some of us have a hard conscience? Uh, Full disclosure, this is a bit of a caricature, okay? So I'm being extreme, but I'm trying to do, I'm trying to argue like James, okay? I'm giving you a thesis, and I'm going to give you an example, Amen. You know, some of you, <laughs> some of you could forget to read your Bible one morning, okay, and end up on your knees in sackcloth and ashes wondering if you were ever truly a Christian. God, I failed you. I don't even belong to you, right? Just, just forgot your daily devotion. It's like, hold on. Maybe that isn't what that means, okay? Some of you have a very tender conscience. Some of you... <laughs> Some of you could be hanging out your car window, shaking your fist, letting a string of expletives that would make Satan blush out of your mouth, okay? And, and not even bat an eye. Roll the window back up and say, oh, oh, thanks for God's grace. <laughs> Off I go. You know what I mean? So, so group one, man, you need Ephesians. <laughs> you got you to gotta camp out in Ephesians. Group two, you need James. You need the directness of James. You need my man to say, you might be foolish. Because, it's, because for whatever reason, the way you're built, your, your conscience is not, it's not easily pricked. Okay? You know, you'd be down, riding down the road right after cussing somebody out, singing Amazing Grace, everything's cool. No, man, you need to repent that you cussed out that person, Okay? Look, Jesus, help us. All right. Uh, why else do we need this contrast? Because some of you struggle with judging others too harshly, assuming the worst about them and about their motives. Some of you struggle with that. Some of us struggle with judging ourselves too harshly. I should have said us with both of those. I'm not trying to put myself in the uh, judging ourselves too harshly camp. Because it could almost seem like one of these is better than the other. These are both a ditch that are going to cause us to lose the beauty of the gospel and nullify our ability to follow Jesus faithfully. So um, 
I, I know I, I rode the car cussers a little harder than I did the, <laughs> the, the Bible reading skippers, but um, part of that's simply because I already know they have a tender conscience, okay? What they, they really don't, what they don't really need from me as a shepherd is, is the cane across the top of the head. Some of you, that is what you need literally to wake up. You need me to be like, dude, you're sinning, stop. Sit down, right? We're different. But I've seen as many people end up away from Jesus and not being able to follow him faithfully out of, out of that too tender of a conscience. Or not even that it's too tender of a conscience, just that that, that tender conscience leads to condemnation. Satan will, Satan will use either one to pull you away. He's fine. If one doesn't work, he'll pivot to the other. He'll, he'll try to find your weakness. Unfortunately, he's been doing it a long time. Fairly skilled at it. Uh, some of you struggle with judging others too harshly, some judging yourself too harshly. Some of you struggle to have any discernment at all because you think the Bible teaches a happy-go-lucky kind of hakuna matata message that means we just shouldn't worry about sin for the rest of our days. That's also not true. And this is, these are all reasons why there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to these issues. And I'm, I'm proposing to you, this is part of the reason why God in his infinite wisdom gave us both the clear teachings of Ephesians 2 and James 2. We need them both. So because we're right here in James, let's work on application for those with a less sensitive conscience. Okay, I told you, I'm gonna try to help everybody. I'm gonna try to challenge everybody today. That's how I'm helping you. So I hope, <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, those with a less sensitive conscience or those who, may, you may have a less sensitive conscience or, or you may actually be an unbeliever. That's part of what James is proposing here. Okay, um, there's, <clears throat> and there's a few iterations of that. You could, you could have a less sensitive conscience because maybe you've bought into this, this kind of model that, that I'll, I'll, it flies under the banner of commonly, uh, I'm getting caught in the weeds, basically hyper grace. The idea that because of God's grace, your sin doesn't matter, don't need to worry about it, it's all been covered, don't think about it, don't worry about it, no need for continual repentance, just just live free, happy, and joyful, and, and you know, cuss them out, smile, and turn on Christian radio. You're fine. There's no problem. Okay, that's that's a problem. That you could be a genuine believer, but your conscience could have been dulled by that kind of false teaching. Okay, that's a possibility. Uh, you you may be somebody that is you 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 think you're a Christian, but you're actually an unbeliever. You may have been taught somewhere that if you pray a prayer one time, uh, exactly as someone tells you to, that that means guaranteed you're a Christian, you're a believer, and you just kind of rocked on with that because somebody in authority said so. You didn't know there was further things to consider. And maybe it wasn't even that you truly understood the gospel in that because sometimes people try to get people to raise their hands and say a prayer by saying things like, are you having a hard time? Well, Jesus will help you with your hard time. Say this prayer after me. That's not the same as coming to the conclusion that I'm a wretched sinner in desperate need of a savior and Jesus is my only shot. Okay, so you, you could have been operating under the auspices that you were a believer because someone told you that, not even ever truly having been impacted by the reality, the beauty, the majesty of the gospel, okay? And I'm not here today to try to get everyone to question whether they're really a believer, but James is clear, we do need to consider that. We need to have this reality, this understanding that people can say they're, they have faith, but it's a faith that won't save them, Okay? I know that's uncomfortable and there's a lot of preachers that wouldn't even say it that way because they, they know the people with a tender conscience that that's gonna send them into a tailspin. But that's why I'm addressing that we have these two ditches. 
We're talking about all of it. So if you're a tender conscience person today, we're, I'm going to help you, but I'm, I'm, right now I'm trying to deal with the hard heads, okay? So just hold on, okay? I got you in a second. Both groups could find false security that I talked about. So either you, you have a, a dull conscience or you're an unbeliever that thinks you're a believer. Both groups could find false security when they read Ephesians or any of the rest of the scriptures that emphasize that we're saved by grace alone. If you don't go and balance that with what James said, you, you, could, you can never be impacted with that reality that there's, there's, a, there's a possibility someone can say they have faith, think they have faith, and not really have saving faith. This can translate into, into thinking mental acknowledgement of God's existence, or even the details around Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is what it means to have saving faith. It just mentally acknowledging Oh yeah, and I can't tell you how many times I've said to somebody, because I'm trying to get to a gospel conversation, like, hey, what do you think about Jesus? And they go, oh yeah, I believe in God. So do the demons and they shudder. Okay, we, there's more we got to talk about, all right? Um, <clears throat> and, and, and for those who really like Paul but don't like James, for those of you who are like, yeah, I think Martin Luther was right. Uh, I don't like what James says. I like what Paul says better. I like Ephesians 2 better than James 2. I would submit to you uh, that James didn't say anything much different than Jesus did in Matthew 7. So if you want to throw James out, you're going to have to throw Jesus out too. Okay? Let me read you this from Matthew 7. This is Jesus. These are red letters. I taught you what that means earlier, right? Okay, if you're throwing Jesus out, we're in serious trouble. (laughs) Where do we stand now? I don't know. Okay? I'm in Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. Listen to this. I'm saying that James was really repeating in, in, in a slightly different way things he'd heard his Lord say. Okay? Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay, things can appear to be one thing and be another. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from the bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. He's not done. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. Whew, is he done? No. Therefore... Every, therefore, therefore, since I said all that, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. What is James saying? Faith is going to have works. Jesus said everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man. Like, ooh, James is calling people fools over there in his book. He heard his master say it. It'd be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and its collapse was great. Okay? So what am I saying? If you're somebody today within the sound of my voice, whether you're in this room, you're catching this on live stream, if you're somebody who can willfully and continually live selfishly instead of sacrificially, if you're someone who isn't convicted often of sin in your life, if you're someone who just doesn't care too much about it, I, I implore you to take these warnings seriously and to consider whether you are a believer whose conscience has been dulled or 
you are someone who thinks they're a follower of Jesus, but has been fooled by a false gospel. I implore you to take these warnings seriously and to consider these things. And don't just push forward in ignorance. God has more for you than that. It's not hopeless, but you're going to have to look in the mirror and realize, man, I've been headed the wrong direction. Now, for those of you who have no business being concerned about that, but right now are wringing your hands, now it's your turn. Those of you with a tender conscience, your struggle is not that you are apathetic about these things, but instead you are struck with fear to your core constantly that James is talking about you or that Jesus is talking about you, okay? If that's you, let's talk for a minute, okay? You might be saying, okay, okay you're bringing up this idea again, man. I, maybe my faith isn't real. How do I know? How do I know if I have true faith? Well, James clearly focuses in on one way here. Your works is one way to know if you have true faith. That is one way to judge. And you might be saying to me, well, what if, but what, what if my works aren't very good? What, what if they're not very good? What if, what if my works don't seem to be showing that I have true faith? I, I want to submit to you that possibly you may be judging yourself too harshly because that is a struggle for some of you. You may be judging yourself too harshly. Maybe, maybe you do struggle with patterns of sin or selfishness. Maybe, maybe it's bitterness or unforgiveness or it's lust or it's anger and, and you're worried that this means your faith is not genuine or maybe you don't really belong to Jesus. And, and to you, dear one, let me say, please, let me first say this, hear me. Don't ever lose your tender conscience. Don't ever give that away. That's a precious thing. But also, don't let our enemy, the accuser of the brethren, take you out of your God-ordained kingdom purpose with condemnation. Don't ever lose that tender conscience. But don't let the accuser of the brethren take you out of the game either. I'm going to say more than this, but the first and most simple thing I would say to those of you with that tender conscience, that that's where you end up oftentimes. I'm going to back this up with scripture, but this is a, kind of a summary statement I want you to try to hold on to when, when the accuser's doing his work, when you're struggling like that. It's pretty simple. <laughs> People who don't belong to Jesus aren't normally worried about whether or not they belong to Jesus. Okay, so that's a good place to start. If you're freaking out about it, man, do I really belong to him? There's a good chance you are and you're under accusation or condemnation because most of the time, folks that don't belong to Jesus, that's not their thought process, okay? The second thing I'm gonna give you is, yes, we can judge ourselves by our works. James makes that clear, but also by our desires. And we see this in Romans 7. Okay? I'm almost done. I know I'm running long. This, I told you this is a lot to unpack. And I, I didn't want to, for the sake of time, I didn't, I didn't want to condense this too much. This is really important. And people struggle on both sides of this thing. And it's real, okay? And I'm not just trying to help you be able to deal with your particular struggle about it. I'm trying to equip you to help others with theirs, okay? So we can judge ourselves by our works, but also, thankfully, Paul wrote some other stuff besides Ephesians 2. Uh, this is in Romans 7, uh, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing. For I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I 
hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, that the law is good. But now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Who? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And so here we have the Apostle Paul laying out this reality that it's important for us to think about what it is we want. What do we want most? How do I know if I'm a believer? Well, we can look at your works. Well, I, I think my works are terrible. Well, maybe some of them, but you also might be judging yourself too harshly. But also, what do you want? What is your deepest desire? Because Paul's saying there's this very real tension within the believer because we live in this middle place where we are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, where we are indwelt by the very Holy Spirit of God, and yet there is still a remnant of the imperfection of sin that we're struggling through. It's a process called sanctification. It starts when God saves us, and it ends when God takes us. In between is tough to sort. <laughs> I mean, even the way he writes about it, I mean, you know, I just read the whole thing to you, and I tried to emphasize the parts I was really here for, but man, this can... It's hard. It's hard to even conceptualize. But everything he just said about being able to look to what we want as evidence of who we belong to, and yet acknowledging what a wretched man that I am, do you know, do you know what the very next verse is? I just read you the end of Romans 7. Do you know what the very next verse is? It's Romans 8.1. Therefore. So everything he just said about how Yes, we're justified by faith. Yes, we're indwelt by the Spirit. Yes, but yes, we still have this struggle with sin, and I hate it. Yes, that's true. But therefore, now, but he said, who can rescue me? Thanks be to God because of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. And then if you know anything about Romans 8, you know he goes on to explain how all things, even our struggles with sin, God will cause to work together for our good. Those who love God are called according to his purpose. We, we look at that verse a lot of times thinking about external circumstances. Oh man, really hard things are happening at me, but God's gonna work them for good. That, it applies, that's true. But in the context, really Paul is, is, is also saying, and maybe even more forcefully saying, God can work even your continual struggle and fight against sin for good, for your good and for his glory. So stop letting the devil beat you into a corner, an Eeyore condemnation corner, where it means you're no longer effective for doing what it is God's created you to do. Friends, this is the bottom line. If we love God, we will hate our sin. If we love God, we will hate our sin. If we love God... If we love God, it's only because we have seen the hopeless wretchedness of our own sin and we believe by faith in his love for us, shown magnificently and perfectly and undeniably 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We only love him because we've seen how unlovely we are and been amazed that he would love us first. That's how this works. If the stony walls of sinful self-reliance and self-righteousness, if those walls around your heart, if they've been crushed to dust by the great hammer of God's love and his gospel, if our faith is truly in Christ alone, then even our desires will begin to change. And I want you to say, it's, it's, I want you to understand it's, it's not all at once, it's, it's a process and it's, it's only done when we've reached eternity. And so those of you prone to very harsh self-judgment, I'm saying you can look at your works, but you can also look at your desires and you may look at both and say, oh, I, I still think I'm in trouble. Friends, the word about the, the process and the truth of sanctification taught in the scriptures, it, it's gotta be something you cling to that your hope rests in. God will finish the work he began in you. For those of you with that tender conscience, it's so very important for you to keep track. If you've got to write it down, whatever you have to do to keep your memory, your mind full of the reality of God's transformation in your life thus far. You have to hold on to what you've seen him already do in you to remember and hold on to that hope that he's going to continue. Because you can get, very, you can get in a very dark place of, of self-doubt and it's, it's all the work of the enemy. You, you precious believers that are prone to carry the heavy burdens of condemnation, I want you to hear me. When your works aren't perfect and you feel defeated, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what you want, what you truly want, what your deepest desire is. If our deepest desire is to serve, love, and obey Jesus, then even if we're not doing a great job at it this week, we can rest in him, knowing that he's gonna keep working with us. He's gonna be patient. He's got the power to help. I've had to tell many of you to stop waiting until your works are perfect, to obey the command to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Because if you do wait until your works are perfect, you're gonna be waiting forever. You'll be in, you'll be in disobedience because you thought you were in disobedience. What a trick. What a trick of the enemy. But it's foolishness. Our qualification for such a noble and monumental mission was never about us anyways. It's always been about Jesus. Yes, you're 100% right. I'm not qualified to stand up here and presume to teach you the, the scriptures, the very word of God on my own. My qualification leans heavy on the character of Jesus. None of us are qualified to participate in the great mission of sharing the good news of the gospel with a broken world. None of us on our own. If we showed up to that party, what we, had, what we would be wearing would be an embarrassment, tattered rags. But thankfully, Jesus is the kind of host that says, hey, I got a robe for you. Dope, gleaming white, not a stain on it. It's mine, but you can borrow it. Man, that's good. The same good news that we're talking about right now, it applies to those of you today who have yet to embrace the free gift of grace. It applies to you and it applies to those of you who maybe thought you had. If you see your sinfulness, if you see your need for a savior, and you can trust that Jesus is the one who can save you, you can cry out to him today by faith. And you can find the freedom, hope, purpose, and the joy that you've been looking for everywhere else, but you've never been able to truly find. This gospel hope is available for you today. The summary of all we've said today, perfect works are not the mark of a true Christ follower, but 
a true Christ follower will always be striving to do good works. Perfect works are not the mark of a true Christ follower, but a true Christ follower will always be striving to do good works. Not only that, they will be honest about where they fall short. And out of love for their master, they will always desire to continue to grow in them. So what do we say, friends? I say, he loved us first, and so let's love him and love others in response. Isn't that what James said? Gave us a bunch of warnings. He said, but if you, if you walk in that royal law, loving your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. Pastor Vince, I don't know what to do. Start there. Love your God and love people in response to how well he's loved you. The rest will sort out. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your manifold wisdom revealed in your scriptures. Thank you that you know us so well. You love us at an individual level. You know that my brokenness isn't like all my brothers and sisters' brokenness, that the biases and the ways that I come to understanding who you are and what it is you're teaching us, it, it all, it's got different influences, and that means we need to hear things from different angles. We need to have circumspect perspective. And I thank you, Lord, that your word, it, it provides that for us if we'll, if we'll see it that way, if we'll, if we'll trust, first of all, that your word is yours, that you've brought it together, and that when we see things that are apparent contradictions, we can move forward in faith, looking to see if maybe instead they're actually a helpful contrast. Please help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to, to do that. Help us to just, just to stay on your side, Lord. I mean, when it comes down to difficult things in your scriptures, difficult things for us to understand, things maybe we don't even like when we read it, Lord, help us to run back to the cross, to remember what is revealed about your character and nature in the person and work of Christ, your love for us, the ends to which you will go to have us. Help us to ground and anchor ourselves there and then to move that forward into those things that are less easy to understand. Help us just to stay on your side and to realize you're worthy of our trust and that sometimes the problem is us. There's dark spots in our understanding. Um, sometimes we're blind from a certain angle, but I thank you. You not only give us your word, but you gave us the body of Christ. Give us brothers and sisters in faith, walking different journeys. And as we walk with them and we see how their struggle may be different than ours or their success may be different than ours, how oh God, that, that widens our, our, and broadens our horizon so that more and more and more we can see that everywhere we look, you're worthy to be trusted, worshiped, adored, and obeyed. Thank you. God, help us to be a church that has works, works that would show our faith is genuine. We love you, Master, and we exalt you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.